This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. Before we get started today, I would like to kindly ask a favor of all of our listeners. If you listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, would you mind scrolling down and leaving a rating and review? That would be super helpful. A lot of our guests look fondly on those numbers, so having those go up would be very beneficial to our mission. Thank you all. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Will Cole. Dr. Cole was named one of the top leading functional medicine experts in the nation, and he consults people all over the world through one of the very first functional medicine telehealth centers. Dr. Cole is also the host of the popular The Art of Being Well podcast and is best-selling author of Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and the New York Times bestseller Intuitive Fasting. Dr. Cole has been very vocal about the effects alcohol has on the brain and body, so this should be really informative. Let's go to Dr. Cole. Dr. Will Cole, welcome to Champagne Problems. Hey guys, thanks for having me on the on the show. Absolutely, we're uh, we're we're honored to have you on, and really excited that you agreed to participate. I've I've actually been going for you for a while, so uh, uh, we've made it. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> hey, we I just show it. up on my schedule, but I love what you guys are doing. I we went we do case reviews every morning when we're because uh, we consult patients. That's my day job is I consult patients, and I uh, via telehealth and. We were going over your podcast and all the amazing things you're doing, and the whole team was excited that we we're doing this today. Very cool. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for doing that research. Let's start with giving our listeners a little explanation or background in functional medicine. Yeah. I'm not sure everybody knows exactly what that is. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad to, to shed some light on this. I, just to give context, as I mentioned, we consult patients. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So basically I just live in this room 10 hours a day and they let me out occasionally to go to the bathroom and see my wife and kids. Um, but I love what I get to do and I it's a passion of mine. And what functional medicine is, first thing is we, we interpret labs using a thinner reference range. So anybody that's listening to this or watching this, They'll know, hey, when I get my lab, whatever biomarker you're talking about with your going to your doctor's office, you'll get your number and then this reference range, this X to Y interval. We get that reference range largely from a statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs. People that go to labs are sadly not the healthiest bunch of people. Yeah. That's why they go into the lab. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people that intuitively know, hey, there's something's up here, like my fatigue, my anxiety, my hair loss, my weight loss resistance, my inflammatory symptom, whatever we're talking about, something's, this isn't normal for me, but they go to the doctor and they'll run the basic labs and they're told many, many, many times, hey, that you're, everything looks pretty good. You're just getting older. You're just, just need to lose weight. You're just stressed. You're you're just depressed. Here's an antidepressant. Mm. All these maybe well-intentioned reasons to, to maybe give answers as to why you could be having symptoms despite these quote-unquote normal labs. Just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. And comparing yourself to people with health problems is no way for you to find out why the heck you feel the way that you do. So we're looking in functional medicine, we're looking at optimal, not average. 
where does vibrant wellness live? That's going to be a tighter range within that larger reference range. So that's how we interpret labs to realize that health and health problems exist on a spectrum. And by the time somebody is diagnosed with a health problem, researchers estimate it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis when things were brewing somewhere on this inflammation spectrum, this continuum of between health and health problems. So that's the first thing that we're doing. We're running more comprehensive labs in functional medicine too, to get a comprehensive data point, multiple data points from multiple labs to get a comprehensive view on why you feel the way that you do. And then we realize we're all different and there's not going to be a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to getting healthy. So we really tailor healthcare to the individual. So we use food as medicine, that's very different than conventional medicine mm -hmm. to really focus on food in a strategic way based on the individual and natural medicines, herbs, botanical lifestyle, biohacking uh, modalities, mind body work and dealing with past traumas and current stressors and then medications when needed to really be full, fully comprehensive to the individual. So that's that's what I do. Wow, man. That sounds really amazing. That's so it's you're essentially going upstream, right? And, exactly. and going to the root cause. That's that's the term. Do you know our lingo? That's what well, that's a functional that's medicine the lingo. terminology right there. <laughs> upstream. Uh, upstream, downstream. That's exactly what we say. I mean, it is upstream driver of it and can cause a cascade or ripple effect of downstream symptoms. So gotcha. Yeah. We use that term in the addiction oh, right. world as well as a prevention strategy, right? Exactly. So. Great. All right. Well, give us a little background on, on Dr. Will Cole. How did you begin this, this path? You know, where did it start? How were your interests sparked? Uh, well, it happened a long time ago in, in Western Pennsylvania, in the, in the, in the country uh, outside of Pittsburgh. And I was, I was in hindsight, I looked back and I was a, just a big nerd. I really loved health and wellness. And I, my first job in high school was a, uh, I worked at the finish line, like, you know, yeah, the tennis the shoe store. <laughs> yeah. So I was 16 years old and I, uh, I was probably horrible at that job, but I, <laughs> I, I used my paycheck and I'd go to the health food store and buy the latest supplement I read about the latest herb or latest food to focus on to really, what I was doing is biohacking before it was even a thing. And huh. I just was fascinated by health and wellness and clinical nutrition and health sciences. And so I wanted to be formally trained, trained in this at, at a school that focused on this at Southern California University of Health Sciences. And it just formalized my passion in health and wellness. So I, I graduated, this is in Los Angeles, I, my wife's from LA. So we moved back in to, to Western Pennsylvania. And I started a, we didn't even have the language for telehealth 12 years ago. We called it a virtual functional medicine clinic because we didn't really have the language for telehealth. But we, there were people in different states and countries that just needed access to this. And I was talking about it online via you know YouTube or via uh, articles. I wrote a lot of articles uh, early on. So that's kind of like I mentioned, I haven't really changed what I do for the past 12 years. And out of that clinical passion that I've had for my patients, I've written a few books about this stuff and have a podcast, The Art of Being Well. So, it, it, but it's all centered for me, centered around getting people healthy. And it's, just, it, it's a sacred responsibility for me to hold space for people that are going through heavy things. And I know that you guys get that, but it's just, 
how can we start to eight hear them? Because these are people that are oftentimes me medically gaslit uh, as far as the de de delegitimization of what they're going through. Like you're, like I mentioned earlier, you're just, you're based, they're made to feel like they're crazy when they're going through hormonal problems or autoimmune yeah. problems or different inflammatory problems. And to give them answers, it is a awesome, awesome experience I get to see on a daily basis of people reclaiming their health for themselves and start living their life again. I love that. I think it really speaks to even the bridge between kind of the the mission of the podcast and of what you do, your practice being, I want to promote health and optimal function. For us, it's really about serving the rest of the community that has been told around alcohol that unless you have a severe substance use disorder, you don't have problematic drinking and therefore it doesn't really warrant looking at. And if it warrants looking at, it's probably because you're an alcoholic and us knowing being in the field that that's just not true at all and trying to create some sort of space where people can come in and not have their issue be delegitimized by saying, oh, well, it doesn't sound like you've had enough consequences or there's really no rock bottom there or any of those other kind of harmful things and genuinely going tell me about what you're experiencing and, and how can we help you get to optimal health, not, hey, you're going to end up under a bridge. This is going to take your liver. Like this is going to steal your family from you. And knowing that not everyone has to be at that level before they want to address it. And it's such a beautiful thing to be able to address it early on and help them get to a healthy place rather than trying to mm -hmm. drag them out of a hole. It's really, really deep. So I really love that. And it, I think one of the things that I hear too is it's it's not a preachy approach in terms of trying to scare people or shame people for any unhealthy behavior. It's really, hey, if you're interested in things being even better, let's take a look at Absolutely. how to do that. Yeah. I mean, one of the main mantras as far as my team is concerned and what we try to educate and empower people with is you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into wellness or obsess your way into health. And I think context and perspective and motivation as to why we do anything for our wellness matters. Because I think that oftentimes we can be fueled, the human mind and spirit can be fueled by shame and fueled by self-loathing and fueled by other people's opinion and feeling forced. But ultimately those, whether you're talking about alcohol or food or exercise or anything within wellness, it will probably be short-lived if you're not coming from a place of self-respect or if it is mm -hmm. sustainable, which I, most of the time it's not, it'll be such a source of dread and anxiety and obsession and negativity that that alone is very unhealthy. Right? So I think that I'm really glad we're talking because I think the alcohol component within my work, I'm not an alcohol expert. I'm a functional medicine doctor, but I see this spectrum of someone's relationship with alcohol as being part of their wellness journey. And it's one thing that I've never, there's a lot, this is a massive problem in our country. I know that you guys know this, but I feel like, yes, and you guys talk about it so eloquently, but like there's, it's a, I talk to people 12 hours, 10 to 12 hours a day. It is so common and people are not writing down alcohol, but when you start uncovering what's their yeah, life right. look like and how they are self-medicating or 
to deal with that anxiety or deal with that social awkwardness or deal with that whatever in their life, it is a massive issue. I heard it said it's easier to change someone's religion than the foods they eat or the things that they drink. (laughs) And I think it's kind of like, wait, what? They have to renegotiate their friendships. They have to renegotiate their habit, everything, their whole routine. So this is a major part of my work is to have a reckoning for them to say, what is serving you and what is sabotaging you? And actually the visit patient visit right before this conversation right now during COVID she started abusing alcohol. I don't think she would be considered an alcoholic by conventional standards, but it was wrecking her life. And it was part of, she really had a reckoning to say this wasn't serving her and, and got her life back. So it's is a big problem. And I'm glad that you're shedding light on this important topic. I think we really notice, this is something I really wanted to pick your brain about because I it, it's such a pet peeve of mine and it seems like such common sense. And so I just get really... <laughs> fired up about it. But we notice that people get on board with trends and are willing to eliminate things from their diet. And what I see is that alcohol isn't commonly talked about in the same way. Like if I go to my doctor and they ask me about my behaviors or my habits and my intake, they don't ask me typically about how alcohol fits into that. Or if I'm going even even to therapy, there are a lot of folks, if they're not focused on substance use, that are not asking about that. And so they could be treating depression in a vacuum without looking at the depressant that I pour on top of my brain every night with dinner. And so curious for you, like, what are your thoughts on moving that forward culturally, meaning we're trying to have alcohol be more in the window that we look in when we're looking at dietary intake? And why do you think there's such resistance to that? Why do you think there's such a separation for alcohol being more of like a social behavior or a social activity rather than part of our dietary intake? Yeah, wow, it's an important question. I I don't know what other doctors ask uh, per se, but I mean, we go quite into detail about how much you drink and then that's a pointer into a conversation. And that's the science and art, I think, of good healthcare, whether it's functional medicine or something else. It's it, it's the, looking at the science and the art and holding both in, in balance there because someone can write out on a form and you have to ask the right questions but the form is one thing but then it's this conversation you're having for me via telehealth like we're talking right now and really you're meeting someone for the first time they don't know you and you're holding space for them and you you have to start digging deep about their how much they're drinking sometimes people will underestimate it on a form sometimes (laughs) And it, it, it might, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Couple beers. But my clinic manager has been with me for t- all 12 years. She always, like, she rightfully points it out. Like, look at this. Like, it's every time that people say a number, it's normally more than what. Maybe they're not even realizing it. Maybe yeah. they, maybe they are, but it's just so ingrained yeah. in their habits that they're not even realizing how much, realizing how much they're consuming in a week. Um, and it could be, again, alcohol, but you could also take the same concept within any. F- thing that's not loving them back, right? It's a food that's not loving them back, a habit that's not loving them back, some self-sabotaging behavior that's not loving them back. Definitely should be included in not a just a life, a social thing. It's like, what is your intake within a day? What is, what are you loading your body Mm -hmm. with? What is, what are you stressing your body with? Um, And yeah, these are hard conversations. And I think part of the problem could be if we don't 
if there aren't good conversations happening in a conventional healthcare setting, it's probably because the system's not talking about a lot of things because it's they're, you're, they're over the system set up for disease management, not for true wellness. So they're right. overbooked. Oftentimes you have like you're waiting in the waiting room for however long, and then you're seeing the doctor for a couple minutes and you, they're not, they're scratching the surface on so many different things that matter. So, and this is just one collateral topic, alcohol, when you're talking about this, you're not getting anywhere. You're really um, just not getting to the heart of this person's life to bring about positive change most of the time. This is so fascinating. Um, so my mind goes to, you know, I'm back, I'm back to the going upstream thing. And to me, specifically with the alcohol, but shoot, I could relate it to everything that you're talking about, the behavioral stuff, the nutritional stuff. And, you know, when you kind of go upstream and try to figure out what it is, and, and obviously there's all these side effects from, you know, alcohol or eating unhealthy, and then you can, you know, take it back to that. It's like, well, how much are you drinking? Do you guys take it even beyond that? So more of a mental health space. Why are you drinking this much? Why are you not able to eat the way that you are trying to? So we're spent in that initial consultation, let alone the months and years that we spend with people and get really get to know them. um, We become friends with these people because you're on a very important journey of their life. But you get a lot of information on that initial consult, but then it's really the unfolding of that unpacking of that and getting to know somebody. So we have many things that we cover. One of them is the ACE questionnaire, which I don't know if you're familiar with, is adverse childhood experiences. So basically we really look at that. We look at their, how they were born. What was, what was it like when they were born? We ask if they were breastfed or not. We ask their relationship with the parents. We ask if they were neglected in any way, abused. Yeah, way upstream. Way upstream. We talk about here, this is how upstream you get. We talk about intergenerational trauma. We go back two, three generations back and what's going on in their family line. So, I mean, it's, yeah, some deep stuff. But the cool thing is the human body is amazingly resilient. So even if people have a high A score, have intergenerational trauma, eat like crap today, and has a toxic, they have a toxic relationship and an unhealthy work whatever relationship we can reclaim these people we can reclaim these people's lives for themselves so it's really cool to see that people up up against insurmountable seemingly insurmountable things can really get their life back maybe for the first time in their life so it's important do you all have a a team of coaches i mean would you call it coaching to to assist with all this yeah they're functional diagnostic nutrition practitioners yeah so there's one of me and many of them, and they hold me. <laughs> we refine each other. They're typically the bad cop. I'm the good cop. But they're like, <laughs> right? They gotta but make, they gotta we're make like a family. I mean, we really do. We all love each other, and we love what we get to do. So it's, uh, it, it's having a, a powerful team behind you is important, right? And an organization. And it, there's so much that goes into seeing this journey through. It's so interesting that there's always been this, not for everyone, but generally a big separation between mind and body and, oh, okay, the trauma is something that you do like EMDR therapy with, or you do some sort of cognitive behavioral therapy with Mm -hmm. to help them with their thoughts. And 
And only if someone's got some sort of panic or something happening, then we look at, oh, nervous system involvement and maybe we should help you regulate your body. But there's this real shift, at least in my small circle, which I appreciate, to much more mind-body connection and where the trauma is actually stored in the body, how we release it, whether it's through like hip exercises and like all the different kind of ways that we can do this and it not just being go to a talk therapist for your trauma and go to a doctor for your labs. There's so much more integration now and hopefully that continues where we can take a look at all of it. And one of the things that we get asked a lot and is so complex to answer is like how much alcohol is healthy Mm -hmm. for me. And we were just talking before we jumped on today about like the word healthy for me doesn't really belong Mm -hmm. in that question. And it's really much more about like how much risk does this amount of alcohol cause Mm -hmm. for me? And Mm -hmm. is that worth it? And and how am I mitigating that risk if I choose to, to use alcohol in that way? Because I think for a lot of people, they're like, well, I know that alcohol can be healthy. And you can find research for that. Certainly I've seen some of it in your articles and you can also find research that says, well, yeah, while that's helping your immune system because of these micronutrients, it's also putting stress on your immune system through this way. And so I'm curious for you, I'm, I have to imagine mm-hmm. you get that question. How do you begin to answer, Hey, Dr. Cole, how much alcohol is healthy for me to consume? Uh, zero would be the answer. Zero would be the answer. Yes. <laughs> are there some? Is there some redeeming qualities? Are there some redeeming qualities to alcohol? Like you could mention polyphenols in wine. They are certain things, but let's not kid ourselves. Like there are way better ways to get polyphenols, and a lot of the research looking at that right. maybe cardioprotective or polyphenol content within wine per se. That's mainly what people are referring to with any nutritional benefit. You have to get drink so much wine to get the, the true protective benefits of these things. And you can get therapeutic doses of these polyphenols in supplement form or an other food form without the negative drawback of alcohol. Because I mentioned the healthiest amount of alcohol for your body is zero. There's not actually a healthy amount. It is a neurotoxin. It is going to negatively impact your body. I like the way that you word it. It's like, what's the risk? that I'm willing to take for mm-hmm. my body. That's, that should be the question, yeah. mm-hmm. not as this beneficial in some way you could probably right. make the argument and I wouldn't even do this, but you could make the argument that low amounts of alcohol. And that is completely relative has a slight hormetic effect, which is a good stress per se, just like maybe sauna therapy or cold therapy or like just annoying your body, <laughs> basically right. annoying your body could have, yeah, yeah it could have some yeah, benefits to some it. people. But I had to say like, that is so mild and there are better ways to bring hormetic effects in your body, like cold therapy, like sauna therapy, like high intensity interval training without the negative drawbacks. So to me, I don't actually see any benefit of it. I see way, way, way more destructive things on both a physiological and a psychological side in people's lives with very little benefit. So I, um, I, I don't advocate it for anybody. I, I think that's something that people really need to have a reckoning on what their, what is it doing to their body physically? It, it, it is a neurotoxin. It will impact your gut health. It increases intestinal permeability. It impact, we obviously know liver health. There's a lot of brain gut inflammatory 
detriments that you're doing to your body the more that you drink. Even more and more new studies are coming out saying even small amounts, even like the tiniest, like thimble amounts of alcohol that you never would know what to drink that little anyways, would have, have negative effects, let alone the amount of people that drink consistently. And the fact that when you talk about some of the benefits of people who drink, what we really know now is that the studies are really conflating causation and correlation is that people that drink small amounts of alcohol tend to have other healthy lifestyle things in their life too, like walking and eating better foods and doing other things that are good for your body. So a lot of the studies that people cite to say, well, look at this study shows that I have the benefits actually is not fully looking at the difference between causation, true causation and correlation of other healthy lifestyle things. But the studies that have done really causative research to look at the core of what it's doing to the body, there's no healthy amount. So that's the conversation that I have with people. I'm super popular amongst my patients <laughs> in this way, but I, they want to get better. I think that it's this journey of when they trust you and they know you and you've got their back, they start to see things in a different way. Yeah. So look, I have to be a pragmatist sometimes. And what I would recommend if somebody has a healthy relationship with alcohol, like they drink a few times a year, like if that's you and you can have a small amount of it, you're at a work function, I would say a low alcohol, make it meaning it's the least offensive, organic, biodynamic wine, but I would say that's going to be the better version of it. But it's not because it's a health food. It's because I'm saying this is the least offensive for someone who's just not willing to take it out of their life. I really love that your definition of a healthy relationship with alcohol is a couple of times a year because I'm just like waiting for the dropped mouths of so many great area drinkers that are like, I have a healthy relationship with alcohol. I have one or two glasses of wine a night. And really looking at like, what does that mean? Because most, at least most of my clients would consider that to be little to no relationship with alcohol whatsoever and wouldn't put the healthy tag on it. They would be like, that's just someone who doesn't really drink. And really looking at, okay, but but maybe that is what a healthy quote unquote relationship is. Because whenever my clients say, hey, what's a healthy amount of alcohol for me to drink? I just say yeah. no. <laughs> and I'm like, let's like reframe that question completely because we're we can talk about safe or we can talk about risk level, but I can't really talk about yeah. a healthy amount. There I don't know how to answer that question properly. And you've broken down into different categories, really like how this affects different areas, right? The gut, there's inflammation, there's immune health, there's mental health. And we've talked about some of those on the podcast before, but there was one that really stuck out to me that we really haven't addressed and really interests me. And that was more about the neurogenesis. Can you talk about yeah. that a little bit? I mean, the old thought of the brain is that, you know, we once brain cells were damaged that there was no re regeneration of it. But now we know there's a whole field of research look, looking at neuroplasticity, the basically the, the brain's ability to regenerate. And every food or every drink that we have is either going to be supportive of that or tear it down. There, it's, and same with inflammation when you're talking about the immune system's response to these things. Every food or drink that we have either feeds inflammation or fights it. There's no like, 
I'm doing nothing for you, food or drink. It's there's no Switzerland food or drink. So it's it's it some in <laughs> some in incremental like ways, some in like negligible ways, right? Especially if you're looking at small amounts of things. But for the most part, we need to look at the things we're having on a consistent basis. What is it doing for us? Because if you're having it on a consistent basis, it's doing one or the other. And you're either gonna have a net positive or net negative. The brain has an amazing ability to regenerate. And there are amazing, and a lot of what I do is focus on really, if you want to reduce it down to simple things, it's just doing things that are supportive of regeneration in the body, whether it's neuroregeneration and neuroplasticity, or it's regeneration in other parts of the body. The body wants to repair itself and alcohol will thwart that because it is a neurotoxin and it really impacts parts of our brain that impacts our memory, impacts our mood impacts you know the ubiquity of things like fatigue and brain fog anxiety and depression and in fact alcohol really makes all of that worse because it's actually damaging the parts of the brain that regulate all of those things energy and focus and anxiety and mood and uh, stability of mood and a major part of my work is educating people on the fact that mental health is not separate from physical health. Mental health is physical health. Our brain is a part of our body just as much as our pancreas is or stomach is. So we have to look at, there's a whole field of research looking at this. It's the cytokine model of cognitive function. It's how inflammation impacts how our brain works. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So how does the things we do in our life, epigenetics, it's lifestyle things like alcohol or food or stress or exposure to toxins or lack of sleep, how do these things constantly and dynamically influence how genes are expressed? And part of that is, is neuroplasticity and brain, brain health overall. There was something that really stuck out to me in, um, I think it was one of the articles that you wrote about neurogenesis, and it was more even targeting like mm -hmm. memory specifically. And that's something I feel pretty confident we have not covered in depth. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about how it mm -hmm. affects memory, long-term, yeah. short-term, all that? So brain fog specifically, I mean, you look memory, word recall, name recall, focus, yeah, where are my keys? And are again, keys? back to like my earlier statement of just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. Like ubiquity doesn't necessarily mean you should settle for it. Like it should be normalized. And many people will think, I, like, I, walk, I can't find my keys or I walk in a room. I don't know why I walked in it or I can't think of their name or and they just settle for it. Like this exists on a spectrum too, like brain fog, focus, memory spectrum. Uh, it needs to be looked at because again, when you're looking at severe neurodegenerative problems like Alzheimer's, dementia, neurological autoimmune problems like MS, it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis when things were somewhere on that spectrum. So alcohol specifically really damages the centers of the brain that are responsible for memory. Do not People need to realize wherever they're at, wherever they're at on that neuroinflammation spectrum, they need to wake up and do something about it. Because the earlier you catch these things, you have some agency over it before it gets too bad. And there's really no, we can still do a lot to make your life better, but there's no reversing at a certain point when you're diagnosed many times. Maybe you can put things into remission. Maybe you can calm down the speed of the, the, the degeneration, but there is a point of no return to, to a large degree with some of these things. 
And does age have an effect on that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing too, is alcohol speeds up accelerated aging. It's speeding up aging and right. like we're all aging, but alcohol is without a doubt going to speed that up and to generate your body more rapidly. Do you drink? I do not drink. I, I will hey. drink. I, I haven't drank in years. I will drink. I'll be the random person when, if there's a work event, I will have, and it's normally a health event. So it's like super bougie and you get the fancy <laughs> wine and it's like a dry farm wines or some organic biodynamic wine. And I'll have like three sips of it just to say, mm -hmm. just to be a part of the, the socialization of it. And that's basically it. So I'm sure that I would be classified as I don't drink even then, but with COVID the past few years, I haven't had that many work events. Like I said, I really don't leave this room much. So I have had no reason to even do that. So no, I don't. <laughs> the furthest I go is just some non-alcoholic kombucha. And I think that there, there's a lot of mm -hmm. great um, alcohol-free mocktail type things out there that have neurotropics and it, yeah. they are very supportive of brain function. So I really, I love turning my patients onto these things. So if they want that sort of ritual or that thing, let, let's have ingredients that actually love you back and really are supportive of brain function and focus and neurotropic research is really exciting to me. Um, yeah. So that's, I'll have those, but that's not alcoholic. Well, feel free to expand on the nootropics because I, I see those all the time. And obviously in our world, we, we, we're constantly kind of mm -hmm. looking at the alcohol-free options and, you know, now they've got, you know, flavored alcohol-free liquors and, you yeah. know, they really can mock just about anything now, but then there's the functional beverages and obviously there's some with Delta-8 and THC and then there's CBD and then the nootropics, which you see all the time as well. Can you explain what that is a little bit or at least what it does to the brain? So they're basically natural compounds that improve all the, the, the brain's function so you could notice more like feeling more chilled out more focused more uh, relaxed you can get the euphoric benefits i think that some people would associate with alcohol but without any you won't feel ne any negative drawbacks from it and it's more mild it's more of just a, a, a gentle approach I, I don't even notice that much to be honest with you but my brain's pretty sharp anyway. So I don't need, to, I'm not doing it for the actual neurotropic benefits, but some of my patients, patients who have brain fog that maybe have anxiety, they really do see the benefits of things like neurotropics because it's moving the needle for them more noticeably in their life. I'm doing it more from a taste side of things. And it's, I know it's good for me, but uh, rhodiola is one specifically different adaptogens are have a neurotropic effect adaptogens are basically plant groups that support the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis the brain adrenal axis and support your body's increase your body's resilience to stress really and that's that's part of the euphoric sensation that you would you may get from something like this but they're going to be using different blends of these herbs or compounds within um different elixirs different tonics different fizzy drinks out there, but I, I, I'm prom like the amount of people that are interested in being, you know, sober, curious, or into these mocktails, or into these neurotropic alternatives. I think it's really cool, and I think a lot of people are waking up to the unsustainability of our way of life and this glamorization of alcohol, this normalization of alcohol, and that's something that I've talked about 
recently on social media more and more is the fact that we need to not be normalizing and glamorizing it within wellness. Like we have just gone too far if we are then bringing it into the fold of wellness as being this normal thing, because I just think it's so, it's so destructive in people's lives. I see it day to day. Uh, And it's when it's washed with like greenwashed within wellness as like this thing, alcohol, I just think it's, it's really messed up because the consumer is already confused and we're like further confusing it as like this healthy thing. And I think people like, I don't know, do you know Todd White of Dry Dry Farm Wines? Mm -mm. You guys should have him on the show. Um, But he is an honest guy. Like he came on my podcast and we've been on a couple panels here and there before, but he will, he owns a wine company and will be the first to tell you this is a neurotoxin. There's no, there's like, he drinks every day, but he calls himself a hedonist. He's not doing it for health purposes. Mm -hmm. And he's just calling a spade a spade. And I think that's, if you're going to be within wellness and doing that and just being upfront and giving people a better for you option, not a healthy option, but a better for you option. I think that's something that can get behind. Yeah. Well, I love that you bring that up because there is this area where it becomes blurred and, and there are people who, I mean, I call it settling, or they're just okay with the risk, or maybe they don't even know the risk. The issue that I find with alcohol in particular, because often people talk about the trend and the way that it's going, and you know, people are waking up to, to the harmful effects, uh, and often people equate it to the tobacco evolution mm-hmm. of, it, of it just kind of phasing out. Well, but alcohol doesn't affect you like tobacco does. Alcohol makes you happy. It makes you feel good. It makes you warm. It makes you feel communal. It makes you connect with, I mean, not everybody, but that's kind of the effect that alcohol has. And it, it is so temporarily effective that it is very, very hard to get people behind eliminating it simply because it works for what they're using it for. And then you have this beyond the wellness, that's like mommy what do they call it? Mommy juice. Like, it's like mm-hmm. this, like, don't know. And the shirts right. that people have like that. It's so, yeah. it's so backwards. It's so backwards. So I, I'm glad that this podcast exists and hopefully uh, it'll empower more people because ultimately at the end of the day, people want to feel great. And I think that if you teach them a way mm-hmm. that they can yeah. feel great, cause they're going into the alcohol to feel good temporarily, but it's just unsustainable. So you can feel freaking amazing sustainably without the negative drawbacks. We're not talking about not feeling amazing or euphoric. You can do that without the negative drawbacks. So I, to me, it doesn't have to be either or like boring existence or drink. It's like, no, you can feel amazing and you love sobriety so much. You feel so good. And there's different things out there within wellness, within functional medicine that are supportive of these euphoric chilled out calming experiences joyous experiences so that to me is where we need to go to this it's not an act of deprivation or restriction or oh i can't Mm -hmm. do all these things no you can do whatever the heck you want you just love feeling great more than you thought you missed that something that was completely a dimming your light it wasn't enhancing your light in in any way yeah, jump in some ice water for five minutes yeah. and, and you'll get high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's true. <laughs> and, and I see brands out there mm-hmm. that are even doing like um, that higher dose, if you know that brand, they're doing some smart things with sauna and that's their tagline, get high naturally. 
And uh, to me, it's yeah. like, okay, there's really cool things you can do that does mm-hmm. more than just get you high. It's supporting detox pathways, increasing circulation, decreasing inflammation levels, doing tons of things. To me, it's like such an old view of like being alcohol-free is this teetotaling, boring, like puritanical uh, <laughs> Christian person that's right. going to like tell you all the things you're bad about and sinning. No, it's like, we feel, we do get to do amazing things that bring so much joy and pleasure in our lives. It's just without the negative drawbacks. I really feel like that's why you fit so well with our mission because we're not trying to target people with a severe substance use disorder. And uh, like we know we've always known what to do with that level of diagnosis. And that's not where the gap is. The gap is in there's nothing really of huge consequence that you can point to, right? People will always say things like, I haven't gotten a DUI. I haven't lost my family. No one's upset about my drinking. Well, that's not the point, man. Like, what do you want in your life? What's bigger than alcohol? And is alcohol getting in the way of that? Or is it helping you get to that thing? And so a lot of what we talk about is what are you doing this for? Or why are you doing this? And let's make sure that your relationship with alcohol is only supporting your forward movement or optimal health, not that it could be kind of holding you back because even some of the the wellness space, like you're pointing to, it can encourage, like, I don't understand when I go to a yoga class at a brewery and it's like free beer after I'm like, I don't want beer. Like I want a green juice. Like I want, like, I'm already doing the wellness thing today. I want to keep that going. And it is just such a strange thing. And yet if I say no to a beer, I get a stranger reaction than if I said no to a burger, cause I want a salad today and, and those sorts of decisions. But Uh, you know, that's our soapbox and we could probably hang out there all day. One of the things that I was really wanting to ask you about was what is the thing or things that you're still shocked by that the general public doesn't know about alcohol? Like the thing that comes up all the time with your clients that you're like, how is this still a thing? Two, Two things come to mind. One is I find that the people that do that are on the one end of the spectrum, the less extreme spectrum, but it's still part of their life on a regular basis. We're talking about people that maybe drink one drink a night, two drinks a night, or they drink weekly and it's like their weekend thing, or it's a few times a month, even that, like Mm -hmm. those group of people. And then they're struggling with brain fog and fatigue or weight loss resistance or digestive problems. And they've cleaned up their entire life. They they eat super clean. They're doing yoga or different exercises. They uh, take all the supplements that they hear about on podcasts. They're doing all the things, but they don't want to go to that corner where they're keeping the alcohol in. and they, they they may say things like well it's it's my one thing and yeah. or it's like that or I do all the good things like why can't you people yeah. need to realize it's that stuff that they're holding on to that if look if they're good where they're at then keep doing what you're doing but if you're like all right I don't I these things are still in my life right. I don't know right. why you may want to look at those things that you think aren't that big of a deal, but are a big deal to your body. And the cumulative, repetitive, chronic use, mm-hmm. you're not ever giving your body a time to repair or, or to deal with this fully. Um, so that's, that's number one. And then number two, it's just the amount of beyond the alcohol content of drinks, the additives that can be added into specifically domestic alcohol. And really much so the domestic wine, 
Like mm -hmm. it is insane. The amount of chemicals and preservatives and colorings and anti-foaming agents that can be put into these drinks. So if the alcohol thing isn't getting you on, like, you need to look about what you're consuming. You need to look at all the other additives that are added to these drinks that aren't even on the labels. They're just allowed to be put on the labels without they're allowed to be put into the drink without being labeled. So I, I mean, we talk about this at length on the art of being well, if you go mm -hmm. to the Todd white episode, we talk about the sort of the dirty secrets of the wine industry and what it's doing. So there's a whole host of reasons why you shouldn't be drinking this stuff. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Why don't you consume alcohol? So I don't consume alcohol for the same reason that I really talk to my patients about, and I'm very transparent with my patients that I really don't preach to anybody, but I'm not even teaching them things that I don't implement into my own life. And I want another mantra concept that I try to get to patients is what I call food peace, or it could be drink peace. It could be life peace. It's like, what in isn't, what is in alignment with your goals? Cause when you really see things like we, whether you want to call it self-care or wellness tools and see these things as a form of self-respect, that's where you should be operating is just infusing all of this with the sense of grace and lightness and self-respect. And to me, when you're really operating from a place of self-respect, it's a bad trade-off. It's a bad trade-off to want something that's going to be out of alignment with how I want to feel when, especially when I have all these other options that are, are delicious or enjoyable and how I want to feel. So to me, it's just out of alignment with how I want to feel. It's like a really bad trade-off. And it's like, if people like the taste of alcohol, if that is a truly thing, I don't even like the taste of it, but if someone likes the taste of alcohol, there are many alternatives that aren't going to have the drawbacks that we talked about in today's conversation. But if they don't like the taste of alcohol, that's the other thing too. It's like, they're just doing it for whatever reason. Let's get you something you actually love that will serve you. So for me, I just love feeling great more than I ever want that in my life. So that's, that's why. It's just kind of, you know, another way of thinking about it is like when you go into Starbucks, right. And you see like that glass, uh, like thing with all the desserts in it. So I have some people tell me, patients tell me like, Oh, how do you avoid all this stuff? How do you like not have that stuff? Same with alcohol. Like, how could you not like you're out with your friends? How could you not do to me? It's like, it's not even like I see it. I don't even see it. Cause it's like not an option for me. Not because it's like, Oh, I can't have that. It's like, why would I want something that's completely going to sabotage how fit. I want to feel? So that's the level that you need to be at where it's not a place of restriction or I can't have it, but a place of like, let's focus on all the things I love that love me back. I posted recently and then it completely applies to alcohol. It's like choosing to eat or drink something that do doesn't love you back repeatedly is like staying in a toxic relationship and wondering why you're still miserable and avoiding mm -hmm. things that don't love you back. Isn't restrictive. It's self-respect. And that's the paradigm shift I want people to go to. Cause when they're talking about alcohol, just like they talk about food, it's like this, Oh, woe is me. I can't have this. I'm on a diet or I'm like, I'm going not drinking. Let's focus on all the good things you can do and, and, and operate from that place of self-respect. That alone just makes me think of kind of the instant gratification that we all, or that a lot of us seek. It's something that tastes good. You know, it's it's not about feeling good in the long run. It's, it's so cheap. It's, 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 it's so cheap. It's taste good. It's feel good yeah. right, in, right now, 
right now in a yeah. big rush is what we want. I want to buy something online. I want to have sex right mm-hmm. now. You know, mm-hmm. that's almost the the con- the opposite or the contrast of kind of the long yeah. haul of wellness. Exactly. Which I why I think the mental, emotional, spiritual side is so important because I think where our mm-hmm. thoughts yeah. are, yeah. like there will be our actions, as I think the Bible puts it. So I think that that we need to come from that place of that mindset of it right and and i feel like that that's why because our culture is so we're raised to be numbed and distracted and it is like the instant gratification culture so i think that's the bigger conversation it's probably it's not just the alcohol it's the larger way in which we numb and distract ourselves and uh, that's applied to technology, it applies to food, it applies to alcohol, it applies to all the things that you mentioned. So to me, it's like, that's why a mindfulness practice and grounding practices, somatic therapies, dealing with the way that we operate with life itself is really important because then you can start to reprogram your brain and your whole self to really not be so compelled to go towards those, those quick fixes or those instant gratifications. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Why do you care? Um, well, why do I care? I care. No, I, 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 I got into what I do because I have a family history of autoimmune conditions myself. And when I see people that you grew up with, you know, and love like grandmas and cousins and siblings going through things, it really, um, you want to help them. And then you open your eyes to the sheer number of people that are going through things like autoimmune problems and other inflammatory problems and brain health issues. Um, and when and then when you know how not easy, but simple it is to reclaim your health, it I'm I'm like evangelized for this stuff because when you see the other side of it, it's like, whoa, why doesn't everybody want to live their best life? Yeah like you can do this. So I'm kind of, and I'm, a, if you know anything about the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram five, which is a researcher. It's like, that's my motivation <laughs> to, to life. So I'm kind of obsessive with research, researching and I'm kind of obsessive about trying to get people to, to live their le- best life. It's just such a cliche. I want people to live the life that they were created for. Yeah. So that's why I care. I love it. Last question. Are you taking any new clients? <laughs> Always, always. Yeah, we have a great bandwidth here. So everybody's welcome. Awesome. Everybody's welcome. I just really appreciate even your passion is really palpable behind what you do and just really appreciate it. I think this will be really inspirational to a lot of people and quite the mindset shift. So just really appreciate your perspective. If you ever need me to talk about this for hours on end, I can do it. So this is like, (laughs) I, well, we would love to. I'll be back. I think we, we, Based on how this went, I I mean, we could easily keep going and I know Sam could go for another two hours. So (laughs) we we would love to have you back. And thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Cole. We appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 
or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.